Sean Turnell is the Australian economist who was jailed for 650 days in Myanmar after the military junta's coup in February 2021. Sean had become a trusted advisor to Aung San Suu Kyi and her democratically elected government. After the coup, Sean was convicted on spying charges and jailed for what would have been a total of four years if he hadn't been given amnesty and released in November 2022. It's an experience that Sean hasn't spoken about much since returning to Australia, but he has put it all into a book which is due for release in November and is called An Unlikely Prisoner. Thankfully, though, Sean's agreed to speak with us about it on The Year That Made Me Today. Sean, thank you and welcome. Thank you very much, Julian. Obviously, your connection with Myanmar is something that you're now very well known for in Australia. How did you forge what's turned out to be a very deep and enduring connection with Myanmar? Well, completely by accident, right, in the, in the usual way of these things. Um, so I met some people who had escaped uh, from Burma at uni in the 1990s after, you know, previous outrages by the military there. Um, they heard I was an economist. I started doing work for the democratic opposition. And then I wrote a book about Myanmar's monetary and financial history, and that sort of got me known. And then very, very strangely, the BBC Burmese service serialised the book and it was listened to by Aung San Suu Kyi under house arrest. She heard it on the BBC and our relationship sort of began from there. That's amazing. How did the serialisation of your monetary and financial history of Myanmar come about? I, I cannot imagine. I remember even at the time being very surprised myself, unless it was some sort of, you know, plot to send the entire country to sleep. But, um, but yeah, well, whatever the motivation was, it, it took place. Um, she listened to it and, and found a lot that, you know, she'd experienced in her own life because it was, you know, very much a history story and caught up in Burma's independence movement and things like that. So it sort of set us off on, on a good track and, then when she was finally released from house arrest, I, I met her and we established a rapport over Sherlock Holmes and Enid Blyton <laughs> and books like that. And then, yeah, sort of developed on from there. Sean, could you tell us a little bit about the actual detail of the work that you were doing with Aung San Suu Kyi's government and economic reforms for Myanmar? The basic motivation, Julian, was twofold in a sense because Burma had missed out on the whole growth story of Asia, you know, the story of the Asian tigers and all that. It was the laggard. The people were desperately poor and all of that. So objective number one was to try and replicate the story of the tigers, lift economic growth and, you know, lift the country out of dire poverty. Uh, the second thing, though, was to try and create an economic system that would be foundational for democracy, that, that would support that. And what that meant in practice was that Myanmar's economy was all tied up with the military and with various crony businesses attached to them. So we wanted to inject competition and just open the country up. So those two sort of objectives, economic growth, but very much with an eye on how economics could support the democratic outcome that the people wanted too. They are two huge challenges anywhere, but particularly in a country like Myanmar. How do you feel you went, and you and the government, I suppose, went in terms of actually being able to implement those lofty ambitions into practical progress on the ground? Yeah, it was a real struggle. 
Um, we had a lot to contend with. So, you know, I mentioned that the military were deeply involved. And so they were a point of resistance all the way through. You know, they, they returned in spectacular and terrible uh, fashion, of course, in 2021. But they were there as an opposition to reform pretty much all the way through. Um, likewise, of course, we had the terrible events that took place in Rakhine State, the genocide against the Rohingya. Um, much of that purposely, in a sense, directed by that same military. So we had a lot to deal with, trying to divert resources away from the military towards things like health expenditure, education expenditure. By the time 2020 comes along, COVID, then we have new elections, November 2020, uh, second term of the, of the NLD government coming up. We wanted to really accelerate economic growth and all that. That was all ready to go and the coup took place. And that was a very direct intervention in, well, every aspect of governance in the country. But Sean, could you tell us a little bit more about how, from opposition or while tolerating, I suppose, a democratic government, how the military resisted the sorts of reforms that you were trying to implement and what sort of interests the military has in the economy of Myanmar? The high point or the low point, I suppose, of the military's intervention in the economy is via two giant companies. Uh, one's called Myanmar Economic Corporation and the other one's called Myanmar Economic Holdings. They've got interests everywhere, in banks, in airlines, in rice mills, the beer industry, just about everything you can think of. And so they were a point of resistance pretty much all the way through. And then, of course, the, the other very strange thing in the Myanmar case is that under the constitution – that the military had created in 2008, the military had great control over their own spending. So, for example, at no point did Suu Kyi's NLD government ever be able to be in a position to determine the military's budget. The military itself was the sole determinant of their own budget. So if the commander-in-chief said, I want 20 billion, he got 20 billion. You were really up against it, but at the same time, you had some real successes in terms of winding back some of the deals that the military had done with China. Could you tell us about that, Sean? Yeah, so one of the big key successes was pushing back on a big Chinese investment project, part of the Belt and Road Initiative, and had been signed up by a previous military government. This particular project was a big deep-sea port on the Bay of Bengal at a place called Jiao Pu. Uh, there was going to be a port there, a special economic zone, a pipeline and a railway going from there all the way up into China's Yunnan province. A massive deal would have brought about $10 billion of debt to Myanmar, and the overall GDP is only about $50 billion, so you can see how big this project was. Uh, it would mm. have been a disaster. So uh, myself and, and more importantly, the Burmese economic advisors I was helping pushed back. And so a great team of Myanmar economists went to Beijing, uh, renegotiated, turned it into something much reduced in scale and, and just useful for Burma and managed to get rid of the clause in the deal that made the Myanmar state be sovereign for that debt, you know, be the guarantor. All that was removed. So it was a wonderful outcome. The only problem with it, of course, since the military took over, I'm afraid we're likely to see that project uh, resuscitated. You mentioned that, of course, everything changed when the coup happened. And one thing I hadn't realised, Sean, is that you could have easily been in Australia at the time that the coup happened because you'd been back recently. Could you tell us about that? And then, of course, tell us what happened when the junta came for you? 
Yeah, so I'd been back in Australia. I'd always intended to take a break and do some teaching back at Macquarie, but then I got stuck because of COVID and I couldn't go back for a long time. But finally, in January uh, 2021, I got a special permission and a special ticket and a special flight all the way back to Yangon. I was there two weeks in quarantine, came out of quarantine. The coup took place the very next day and I was arrested by the military three days after that. And I suppose it's no surprise in that context, Sean Turnell, that you've chosen 2021 as the year that made you. It must have been one of the most, if not the most challenging year of your life. What happened when you were arrested? Uh, Yeah, it was an extraordinary experience. I I got a warning uh, at about four in the morning from somebody in the hotel saying that the military had taken over the hotel and that they were watching through CCTV the door of my room and that if I could, it was time to get out. The trouble was, of course, I couldn't really go anywhere because, again, this is COVID. There's no flights mm. in and out. It's only these special, you know, diplomat flights and all that. So I was really stuck. I gave a call to the Australian ambassador in Yangon and said, look, this is the situation. I'm going to try and check out. The Australian ambassador, Andrea Faulkner, uh, came to the hotel and I made my way down to check out. And what I was hoping to do was to, you know, get in her car and get to the Australian embassy. But unfortunately, just as I presented my credit card to pay for the hotel bill, of course, being an economist, you must do that. Um, But just as (laughs) I extended the credit card, I felt this sort of phalanx of police form in behind me. And I thought, uh oh, and um, yeah, arrested at that point. Some tense hours in the lobby of the hotel, and then finally taken away by the police. What sort of conditions did you face during your interrogations and detention, Sean? Oh, just awful, Julian. Really bad. For the first two months, I was just held in a room that I called the box. Uh, just a concrete floor, no windows. Um, in the middle of the room was this steel chair with leg manacles and, and handcuffs and all that. There was hardly any room apart from the chair, but I lived in that for two months, just completely on my own, no contact with the embassy, no contact with anyone, um, and the interrogators would, would come in at any time of the day or night and often in the middle of the night to interrogate. Lights were on all the time. Um, I could hear prisoners nearby being tortured. I could hear the the struggle in Yangon outside. I could hear the explosions and the gunfire going off as the military were really cracking down. So, yeah, very distressing was that first two months. Then subsequent to that, I was moved out of this box, uh, which was just in a police station on the edges of Myanmar's very famous and extraordinarily named Insane Prison. (laughs) <laughs> Spelled different from from the label, but um, but yeah, sounds like it works in both languages. Absolutely, and um, spent six months there. Another year transferred up to Myanmar's bizarre capital city called Naypyidaw. Spent another year there, then back to Insane for a few months, and then the amnesty came in and I uh, came back. It's hard to imagine how shocking it must have been to find yourself in that situation, and the challenges that you faced on a day-to-day basis. But you, you do sound, Sean, incredibly resilient. How did you manage to deal with such an extreme experience? 
I think the number one thing that was the support I had from outside. My wife, Harvu, was, you know, just incredible. My dad, my, my sister, my nephews, my daughter, everyone sort of, you know, just rallied to me. And they loved, I could just feel it. Um, I was allowed some contact mm. eventually through the embassy. So I'd get to talk to her and the others here and there. So I, I knew the support more broadly from Australia. So I really felt that all the way through. I got things delivered to me, but above all books, um, I'm a real bookworm and always have been. So as long as I've got books with me, I can survive, I think, almost anything. Um, So the worst moments were when I didn't have the books, but if I had the books, I could just about pretend to be somewhere else. And were you at least afforded pretty steady access to books while you were in prison? It varied. So most of the time I did, but it was always arbitrary. I think in many ways the worst thing to deal with was a complete lack of agency. You could choose nothing. You could not make Mm. a decision about when to wake up, when to go to bed, what to eat. And so I had the books, but they could be removed at any time and often were or, or denied. So I always felt just so vulnerable to their removal. But when I had them and and those hours that I could just be alone with them, that was the ways that, you know, I got through. What sort of interactions did you have with other prisoners during your time inside, Sean? I had a lot of interactions with the other prisoners. Most of the prisoners with me were political prisoners and I'd known them before. So they were senior government uh, ministers and, and some of the reformers, including, you know, the people who successfully renegotiated the the China BRI story. We helped each other out, we cooked for each other, we swapped books, we shared stories, we consoled each other, all of that. But I also spent some time in the beginning with just ordinary criminals when I was put into inside prison. It was just amongst the general prison population and so I shared the space with narcotics dealers, a couple of murderers, some fraudsters, some forgers, uh, and I actually got on surprisingly well with them. I, I would never have picked it at the time, <laughs> but I, I made some really good friends amongst particularly the narcotics traffickers. <laughs> We're speaking with Sean Turnell on The Year That Made Me and speaking about that terribly traumatic year of 2021, which of course extended well beyond that. When did you find out what you were accused of and how did you feel when you went through the trial process and then were convicted and sentenced? It took ages to know what they wanted. So I think by the end it was about six months in where I realised that they were going to charge me with breaching the Official Secrets Act. So they were alleging that the documents that I'd had access to in working with the Myanmar government, et cetera, had actually been about me being a spy in a sense and getting secret information, passing it on to Australia, passing it on to the Americans, passing it on to the World Bank and IMF and George Soros. So there were a number of, you know, accusations about it. But, yeah, the overall impression they wanted to give was that I was sort of this sinister figure in the background undermining Myanmar's sovereignty. That was sort of the overall pattern. And then we went to trial and the trial was just completely absurd. I mean, firstly, I wasn't guilty in the first place, but a lot of manufactured evidence was presented. I had people testifying against me who I'd never seen and never interacted with, but who told the court that of all these interactions they'd had with me. Mm. And of course, the outcome was absolutely preordained. Once you're charged in this regime, there's no question other than you're guilty. And so I was duly convicted in September 2022. 
And, yeah, given that four-year sentence with labour, actually, which horrified me uh, as much as the sentence itself uh, because mm. I, I, I'd seen some of the labour that, you know, some of the prisoners were subjected to. I remember particularly the impression of seeing some young prisoners uh, being directed to mow the grass in insane prison, which meant literally plucking individual leaves of grass or, or glades of grass as a way of keeping the garden, etc. But, you know, many other things like that as well. And then after that, just a real deep feeling of despair. And I was transported back to insane prison. Some of the worst moments were actually in that period, because I really thought at that point, okay, I'm going to be here for a few more years now. Did you feel in that time that you had sort of made some progress towards getting a mindset that would enable you to survive for what was shaping up as a very long period of incarceration? No. By then, I was beginning to deplete my resources, uh, mm. emotional, um, psychological, and so on. And I guess for a lot of that period, I was living sort of fairly high adrenaline all the time. And I was starting to get some physical issues. I, I had my teeth. I had terrible pain in my teeth. But other things as well. You know, I, I had a screw go loose in my glasses and, you know, it doesn't sound like much, but of course I had nothing to fix them. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, the terrible irony would be that I had books but didn't have glasses to read the books and gradually sort of things depreciate. And of course, by then I'd lost a lot of weight. The food was absolutely appalling. Um, I caught COVID five times. So I was at a pretty low ebb when the release finally happened. Yes, there was a very swift release not far away. How did that happen, Sean, and how did you find out about it? Totally unexpected was my release in the end. So I had a conversation with my wife on November uh, 16, which happened to be our anniversary. We were both in despair. We were sort of despairing that it was the second anniversary that I'd missed. And and also we'd come to the conclusion collectively that I was likely to miss another Christmas. And then... November 17, I'm pacing up and down the cell doing my thousands of steps as always. Prison guard suddenly appears and says, Sean, good news, you're going home. I was just stunned and I, I just didn't know what to say. And I said to him, mm. are you kidding? Uh, is this real? And he said that it was. And he said, but look, you've got 10 minutes. Grab whatever you can. We've got to get you out. And I sort of bumbled around for a few minutes and then was escorted out of my cell through the giant insane prison. I'm getting cheers and, and waves of other prisoners as we're heading to the gate. But I still had a knot of anxiety because it's a bit of a practice under this new military regime in Myanmar that prisoners sometimes get rearrested as soon as they step out of the prison gates and new charges mm. come on them. And, and I was terrified that this was going to happen, uh, but it didn't. And all that was there was a minibus to drive me to the airport and to meet the new Australian ambassador, Angela Corcoran, and all the Australian team, and eventually to be put on a plane and, and taken back to Australia. You know, such a great series of hours followed. Sean, what's it been like for you since you got back to Australia? Have you been able to recover anything that feels like a, a normal life? And how are you going? Yeah, pretty good. Um, I, I had the book to write, so I always wanted to do that because I, I half wrote it in the prison. I, in my pacing mm. up and down, I would actually rehearse it and think it through. So, so I've had that to do, and and that's been uh, a bit of therapy, I think. Uh, ups and downs, of course. Uh, m mostly ups, though. I hasten to add, just the sheer joy of getting back to Sydney and 
back to Australia and, and a country that is wealthy and healthy and incredibly well adjusted. And, you know, I know we have our issues and so on, but really Australia is just a paradise. And the only downside, of course, was that the military regime in Myanmar is still trying to get me. So after I made just some fairly innocuous comments on getting back to Australia, they revoked my amnesty, reimposed the charges. So it means that, you know, I certainly can't go back to Myanmar anytime soon. So that's been the only negative thing. But the rest of it, just getting back with my wife and my daughter and family and friends has just been, you know, just been wonderful. Well, it's been wonderful speaking with you, Sean. Thank you so much for speaking with us on The Year That Made Me. And we'll look forward to the release of your memoir, An Unlikely Prisoner, in November this year. Thank you once again for speaking with us. Thanks very much, Julian. And we always finish The Year That Made Me by asking our guests to nominate a piece of music that may or may not relate to the year that you've chosen, uh, 2021 being that year. What have you chosen for us, Sean, and why? Well, mine's a little bit bizarre, Julian, but it is the theme <laughs> of the movie The Battle of Britain, which I think came out in 1968, and it's a great stirring orchestral piece. Why it's relevant to me was, you know, as a kid I got caught up in all those sort of movies, uh, but in the worst moments in the trial, the arrest, everything. The, when I really hit the pits, I would summon up this tune and I would think about what it meant and the, the Spitfire pilots in the Battle of Britain and all that and the courage they had and, and I would summon that up and I would hum it as I was being escorted. I remember particularly that day that I was sentenced and asked to stand up uh, in front of this judge to get the sentence and, and I was humming this this tune to myself and just thinking, well, you know, people have survived worse and I've just got to get through it. That's an extraordinary image and we'll brace ourselves for a rousing anthem to finish the segment. But Sean Turnell, thank you once again. Thanks again, Julie. was the theme from the Battle of Britain, written by Ron Goodwin and performed by the Central Band of the Royal Air Force. And it was chosen by our guest on the year that made me, Sean Turnell, who, as he said, thought of that music as he was sentenced to four years in prison by the Myanmar junta. And uh, I couldn't agree more with our texters who say things like, what a wonderful, impressive man Sean is. Um, such a positive and, and nice person. And one person says, no surprise that the other prisoners got on well with Sean. Thanks again to Sean for speaking with us. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.